Olha só. I'm in the mood for weaving. Let's weave. We're returning to the topic of loving kindness. We should never leave it. And our very capacity for loving kindness for ourselves or anyone else, of course, stems from this most primal drive we have caring. I've never heard anybody besides His Holiness say that, but when he said it, it just struck me as so true that there it is, primal, built right into our Buddha nature, right into our very being, from the ground all the way to the surface. And as I wasn't really reflecting on it, but as thoughts came to mind this morning, it really struck me that insofar as, it's a gradient, insofar as our minds are resting in the natural state, not constrained, not cramped, not warped or woofed or distorted or obscured, just resting in the natural state, uncontrived, unmodified, unfixed, unimproved. The flow of the flow of caring just flows unimpededly. That's my sense. Unimpededly. It starts where it is, of course, but it just flows out unimpededly. And I think that's not just a nice thought, and like a happy thought, but I think there's evidence for that. At least from our perspective as human beings, and that's the only one we can really have for the time being. You know. But if we witness someone in great pain, we hear them wailing. As long as your mind is in its natural state, just at rest, your heart's moved, right? You can't help it. If you see someone just joyfully laughing, you smile. And not something you try to do. It's not some, when, you're, when you're good or in a good mood, just when you're resting in its natural state. What I find interesting here is that, uh, I find many things interesting, is that we can care not only for beings who do exist, but for even beings who don't exist. Have you ever watched a movie and cried? <laughs> Have you ever watched a movie and just felt sheer delight and joy in someone's success who doesn't exist at all? The character in the story? You know. Or I saw in the news uh, an, an item just a few days ago. For, for, those of us, for those of you who are like me, Harry Potter fans, if you're not, just don't raise your hand. I want my flow of caring to extend to you and not be impeded. <laughs> but you remember in the, in the, in the finale when this, that lovely professor, that such touching professor, Remus Lupin, you remember him? And you remember he died? Yeah. Wasn't that a heartbreaker? <laughs> I mean, he was so sweet, apart from the mo- moments when he was a werewolf <laughs> and wanted to rip the, rip the guts out of everybody, when he wasn't in a bad mood, when he was in his natural state and not under the grip of this werewolf mental affliction. He was just an incredibly sweet and endearing character, wasn't he? Very lovable, right? And so when he died, it was quite quite sad. And even J.K. Rowling commented recently, this was a news item, that she regretted killing him off. (laughs) Now you you regret. (laughs) It's a little bit late, (laughs) J.K. You killed him. And I liked him so much. 
and he never got to see his children. <laughs> so there it is. So the prospects look really good for immeasurable loving kindness and for great loving kindness. And for Buddha, since this is our prime motive, our prime impulse, it looks really good until the plot thickens. And we see that this impulse of caring, which just naturally extends in all directions evenly, does get blocked. Barriers come up. Barriers come up, right? Barriers of my side and his side. Not too many people felt a great deal of remorse when the one who must not be named died. It's kind of like... Although there was that scene in the, wasn't it Victoria Cross, in, in, the, uh, in the railway station, where you look at that pathetic little humanoid creature, you kind of feel, oh, maybe we can even care for him. Right. Not deviating too much from the central theme here. What impedes, what creates the barriers to the impulse that would otherwise flow unimpededly, make, make us natural bodhisattvas, effortless bodhisattvas, right? What are the barriers that come up? Well, of course, for starters, we're off on, we're off on the wrong track when we reify ourselves, reify others, and reify the, the difference between self and other, the dualistic grasping. That that's, that doesn't look like that's going to turn out well. Because then when we add self-centered, self-centeredness to that, prioritizing our own well-being over the other, this looks like it's not going to turn out well. And then among the other, then we differentiate those who seem to be on my side, I care. Those who are against me, I, I want you to die. And the ones who are relevant, I don't care one way or another, attachment, aversion, and indifference, that's not going to turn out well. Right? But we make this specific, because I don't want to just deal in abstracts. As we ourselves, as we go into the next meditation, this will be our last meditation in the sequence of immeasurable loving kindness. What I invite you to do is settle your mind in this natural state. And then see who comes knocking on the door, but you might actually put an invitation on the door. Uh, enemies welcome. Enemies as in those for whom your heart's not really that open. There's resentment. There's anger, there's contempt, disgust, hatred, aversion, dislike, disgust, so forth. We have so many words for it. <coughs> Where if we try to develop loving kindness for that person, it's contrived. It's not very sincere, not very deep. And as soon as we stop trying, it vanishes. Whenever there's such a view, and I know it well, of course, towards another, an attitude or perspective on another sentient being, there's always a story. I think in my, in my case, there's a story. There's something behind it. There's something that led to it. It didn't come out of the blue. And my sense is that it's, no, I'm actually, my very strong conviction is that when we find that the flow of caring and therefore the flow of loving kindness is blocked, it's because we conflated the person, and of course it could be whole groups of persons, um, of individuals and so on. We've conflated the one for whom we do not feel loving kindness, do not care, with something that they are not, which means it's delusional. 
we've equated, let's say a person, let's make it singular, we've equated a person with something disagreeable. Their behavior, their attitudes, how they've treated us, how they've treated other people, other people that we care about. We may have equated them with their appearance, with what they say, attitudes they've expressed. And we just find that we can't love those attitudes, the behavior, the appearance, the words, and so forth, and feel we somehow should. And the answer is we shouldn't. We don't need to. There's no need to develop loving-kindness for behavior. Behavior is not sentient being. There's no need to develop loving-kindness for anyone who's not a sentient being. Behavior is not a sentient being. Physical appearance is not sentient being. Speech, not sentient being. Attitude, not sentient being. Bigotry, hatred, crudeness, self-centeredness, all the things that we deplore, none of them are sentient beings. So why should we even bother to even think about cultivating loving-kindness for such? Bodies are not sentient beings. Institutions are not sentient beings. Parties, political parties, and so forth, are not sentient beings. Right? And so we shouldn't try to do what we don't need to do anyway, and which probably is impossible, and would be misguided if we succeeded. But rather just love sentient beings. And then, and this is, this is wisdom from Paul Ekman, you know, who's not a religious man, but a very fine man and an extremely astute scientist. He's speaking straight, it's just a straight affective psychology. And one of the world's best, he said, one of our fundamental errors is to conflate behavior with people and then have emotions towards a person triggered by the behavior, conflating the two. Basically what we're doing is we're designating a person on the basis of behavior. This person is a bigot. This person is evil. This person is greedy. This person, and so forth and so on. Okay? If you want, that's what you want to do, you can. There are greedy people, there are evil people, malevolent people, that's true. If that's what you want to do. Right? But to actually equate, to, to equate the two and then reify, that's where problems will be. That's where the, the lead walls come down and impede the flow of caring. But again, in our own, keep it coming, coming back personal, personally. The caring is for sentient beings. And we can, for the time being, we can speak of, of human beings, but certainly don't want to be constrained there. But as we look at our own personal history and people who may, may have treated us badly in the past, and very hard to let go because of what has been done in the past. It's very easy then, and I'm going to invite in some guest speakers this morning. It's very easy when we view a person with whom we have some history, and we have certainly history with a lot of people, it's very easy to have the sense that our view, our appraisal, our, our take on that person is the one and only right take, that it's objectively true, especially if we can find somebody else who agrees with us. We look for that, don't we? When we make an evaluation of the person, something negative, we say, don't you agree, Claudio? And Claudio, yeah, 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 yeah. And that's true. Let's make it third person. Lim, don't you agree? Yeah. Okay, third person, we're done. Third person perspective, you know. It's a scientific conclusion. I've got three people on my side. I, you know, I don't care how many. I mean, you know, there we are. That's what we do. And William James comments here, and I'm quoting him again. Everyone, he says, quote, is prone to claim that his conclusions are the only logical ones and that they are necessities of universal reason as I see everybody sees, as I evaluate everybody sees. 
that their necessities of you know full reason, they being all the while at bottom, accidents more or less of personal vision, which had far better be avowed as such. Not bad, huh? Not bad. So as we attend to others, we bring to the mind, as we'll do shortly, but we may go, we'll definitely go on a bit longer this morning. Uh, as we settle the mind, just see who comes knocking at the door. People may come to mind that we know a fair amount of by way of the media. We're inundated with media, so we have a lot of information there, right? And then, of course, we may recall people with, with our personal histories, our engagement with them over the past. And we see where those, the barriers come up. But a very simple point, it's crucial though, is that whoever comes to mind, really struck me this morning more deeply perhaps than before, whoever comes to mind, the, the, the worst villains of history, the most sublime people of history or of the present, of personal people that we know in person over the years, whoever comes to mind, of course the appearances coming to mind are rising in the space of our own minds. We're not plucking them from objective reality. They're being freshly created, of course, because they weren't waiting to drop into our mind space, right? Into our mind space. They're actually emerging from our mind space. Whoever we're thinking of at any time, Jesus, Buddha, Genghis Khan, whoever it may be, the appearances come up. And all of those appearances are emerging from the space of our own mind, and they're all painted. They're all painted by our own minds. They're all painted. We have no hues, no colors that we can draw from outside of our own minds. We can never jump outside and say, I'll now I'll pick, I'll paint a picture of you using your colors. No can do. I can paint a picture of me painting my colors. That's easy. Do it all the time. But whenever I paint a picture of you, I'm always painting you with my colors. Right? What makes sense to me? And so if you have virtues that I cannot even conceive of, and some of the individuals, well, all of the individuals behind me are like that, represented on the altar. They all have virtues beyond my conception. And so when I think of them, I cut them down to size. My little, you know, paint by the dot. Like that, what do you call it? Paint by, paint by the, what's it? Numbers. Number, paint by numbers. My little numbers. My little crude caricatures of, of his whole Dalai Lama, Tara, but... I, I cut them down. To, I, I don't want to. I like to see them as they are. It's not up to it. So I see them as I am. But what this means, well, let's just go there for the moment, that the Padmasambhava, the Dalai Lama, Gyatrinambhuche, the Buddha himself, who come to mind, who come to my mind, have no existence outside of my mind. They don't exist in Mary Kay's mind or Lim's mind or Andre's mind. You're not, you don't have to borrow, you can make your own. But they're, just, but they're not simply, you know, Tara, Avalokiteshvara, Manjushri, and so forth, of course. They're my take. Which means these sublime beings, as, I, as they come to my mind, have no existence whatsoever outside of my mind. They don't exist in Claudio's mind, they don't exist in, the, you know, in some objective reality or in the mind streams of these sublime beings. They're only mine. Right? But then when I think of people that have, with whom I've had discourse, discord, discord, conflict, who maybe I feel have treated me poorly over the years, 
whoever that comes to mind, I painted them with my mind as well. Which means as I bring them to mind, there is nothing outside of my mind that corresponds to those because it's my painting. Inspired, as they say, you know, by like movies that are inspired by true events, but you have no idea when you're just watching the movie. Where did the truth start? Where did the fiction begin? You have no idea. In other words, it's just a movie. So when we find that resistance, the flow of caring is, is impeded. It's impeded because we're reifying the people who come to mind who in fact don't have any existence outside of our minds. And that blocks. That blocks. And so much of this is based on history. That is when we've, we've known people. Maybe it's just one encounter. Or maybe it's people we've known for years and just time and time again they've brought us grief and misery and they've treated badly, been dishonest, exploitative and so forth and so on. There are people like that. Yeah? And it's very easy on such occasions to look at our histories with other people and think, this is the one true story. It's my story. I got it right. This is what happened. Would you like me to tell you what happened? Would you like me to tell you, tell you how this person is interacted with me? I'll tell you. I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you the history that I have with such and such a person. And so it's quite obvious then at that point that we should really invoke, invite in two guest speakers, uh, Stephen Hawking and Thomas Hertog. I mean, quite obvious to bring in quantum cosmology. <laughs> so, and this time I qu- I'm going to quote them directly, because I, I get tired of paraphrasing. I like, okay, in their own words. So in their paper, it was a very technical paper, but I scanned through until I could find a sentence or two that I could understand. And then I quote ver- verbatim, okay? So it's what they really said, and not me. <laughs> So here's what they say. The bottom-up approach to cosmology, and that is where you just take your history from reality itself, bottom-up. You go back and you ask what happened at the time of the Big Bang, and you reach back 13.8 billion years, and bottom-up, you pull that out, and then you'll tell your story based upon how it all began. Okay? Or, similarly, because I want to relate quantum cosmology with loving-kindness, you go to your relationship with a person who, uh, where the relationship may be just fraught with discord and animosity and resentment and so forth, and we'd like to go back and just take the beginning and then tell the story from the beginning. That would be cool. That's bottom-up cosmology. That's bottom-up personal history. right? The bottom-up approach to cosmology would be appropriate if one knew that the universe was set going in a particular way in either the infinite, in, in either the finite or infinite, infinite past. That is, you could do that if you knew the universe was going in a particular way. That is, if you knew the original con- initial conditions. If you knew t equals zero, this is where it started, you got a lock on that, then you could play the story forward. Right? We don't. We don't know what triggered the Big Bang. Not a clue. That first moment when you encounter someone, anyone, that first moment, hello, you're meeting them from the very first moment. That person is not a tabla rasa and you're not a tabla rasa. You're not blank sheets. You're not empty sheets. You're coming in with history. In that first moment, you don't know what brought that about. Right? 
that big bang of that relationship. You don't know what triggered it. You don't know what that person brought to it. You don't know what you brought to it. It's like big bang. It happened, but you don't know what brought it about. However, in the absence of such knowledge of what were the initial conditions that started the universe or a personal relationship, in the absence of such knowledge, one is required to work from the top down. And that is you're making your measurements, your evaluations from the present moment and from that perspective, that cognitive frame of reference, you're looking to the back. But all the measurements of your make, you're making, all the assessments, all the observations, all your awareness of the past is based upon appearance in the present. Isn't that interesting? And that's true cosmologically and it's true in an interpersonal relationship. So this is top-down. In top-down cosmology, the histories of the universe uh-oh, histories, not one. The histories of the universe thus depend on the precise question asked, that is, on the set of constraints that one imposes. So you're poised here in the moment, in the present moment, and you're not prepared just to ask what actually happened. You have to ask a question. And it's your question. It's not God's question or nature's question. It's your question. And then to answer the question, you need to view in a particular way, not a generic way, but in a particular way. Right? The top-down approach we have described leads to a profoundly different view of cosmology and the relation between cause and effect. We think of cause being absolutely prior and effect being absolutely subsequent in a very deterministic worldview than the, pr the present is actually predetermined absolutely, you know, frozen in concrete by the past. Many people still believe that. Everything now, it's, it, this is a paradigm shift. This is really fundamental. What they're proposing, and this is quantum cosmology, and some of the brightest thinkers in, in physics are embracing this, Stephen Hawking being one. Top-down cosmology is a framework in which one essentially traces the histories backwards from a space-like surface at the present time. So we're not reconstructing. We think when you write a history or we tell a story, we think we're reconstructing what actually happened. Right? As if we can actually go in a time machine and pluck it, you know, go back into the past and pluck that first moment and tell the story forwards. That's bottom up, but that never happens. The top down is you're not reconstructing a story, you're constructing a story based on your perspective in the present moment and then making it up going backwards and making it up from your perspective, your cognitive frame of reference, of the questions you're posing and the way you're looking. The no-boundaries history of the universe, no-boundaries means not locked into one absolutely true story, the no-boundaries history of the universe thus depend on what is being observed. What are you attending to? For the moment, what you attend to is reality. Right? William James. William James meets Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, William James. This, these histories of the universe depend on what is being observed contrary to the usual idea that the universe has unique observer-independent history. He's throwing that out entirely. And similarly in our relationship with other people, we should throw out entirely as absolutely baseless, having no grounding in reality whatsoever, that there is a unique observer-independent history of your relationship with another person. That person doesn't have it. You don't have it. Nobody else has it. And what you can be sure of is your different histories are different. 
That person's perspective on history is definitely, absolutely different and has no existence outside of that person's mind. And your vision of history has no existence outside of your mind. This is in sharp contrast with the bottom-up approach, where one assumes there is a single history with a well-defined starting point and evolution. The repercussions of this is just absolutely awesome. And I think it's true. This is summed, this is summed up by a person, by a, a, science, a science writer. But that was in his own words. I thought you should have his words. And here's a very astute summary of this. How you understand the past depends entirely on the questions you ask and the methods of inquiry you adopt in the present. Every possible version of the past exists simultaneously in a, st- in a state of quantum superposition. We tend to think spilt milk, water under the bridge, and so forth, it's already happened, nothing you can do about it. And here, from the, both the perspective of Madhyamaka, where time has no inherently reality, Past, present, future have no inherent reality. They arise only relative to conceptual designation. And here, quantum cosmology, the cutting edge of 400 years of physics, all possible histories exist simultaneously in a state of superposition. Potential. When you choose to make a measurement, and again, the issue of choice is enormous here, When you choose to make a measurement, you select from this range of possibilities a subset of histories that share the specific features measured. That is, the history arises relative to your questions, your system of measurement, and the way you conceptually designate whatever comes up. The history of the universe, as you conceive of it, is derived from that subset of histories. In other words, you choose your past. You're not recreating your past, you're creating your past but you can create multiple pasts, depending on the questions you pose now. So your past with the person who injured you, treated you badly, anyone for whom you find barrier coming up, it's based on the, it, it wasn't intrinsic. It wasn't from the very first moment. I hate you when I first see you. It grew up over a history. But that's only one history that gave rise to this negative result, right? The negative result is, I, I, I don't care for you. But that's one that blocks our, own, uh, blocks our own hearts. So that wasn't a good story. Rewrite the story. There was no beginning anyway that you could trace forward. So from the present, ask different questions. Make different observations. And come up with another story, better story, that's equally valid one that is conducive to your own and others' well-being, rather than destroying it. So it suggests that what is happening in the present is your choice, it's as you like it, but even the past itself doesn't really exist, does not have one absolute history to it. The past itself is as you like it, you choose. Which then, of course, is an obvious thing to go from Stephen Hawking to William Shakespeare. (laughs) to his play as you like it. All the world's a stage and all the men and women are merely players. They have their exits and their entrances and one man in his time plays many parts. His acts being seven ages and he lists the phases we go through. 
And the end of this soliloquy, last scene of all, that ends this strange, eventful history, is second childishness and mere oblivion, sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. The movie's over. The show's over. That illusory display is over. From that, of course, we must go from from Shakespeare to Shantideva. It's a natural segue. (laughs) Guide to the Bodhisattva way of life. Direct quote. My enemies will not remain, nor will my friends remain. I shall not remain. Nothing will remain. Whatever is experienced will fade to a memory. Like Like experiences in dreams, Whatever is experienced is reduced to a memory, and all that is past is seen no more. (laughs) I must say, I really enjoyed that. (laughs) So let's meditate. Taking refuge in your own pristine awareness, ultimate bodhicitta. And from this spontaneously allowing relative bodhicitta to emerge as your motivation, settle your body, speech, and mind in the natural state. And as you rest your awareness in its own place, holding its own ground, be aware of what is already present, a ceaseless flow of caring.
manifest quite effortlessly, effortlessly and naturally, of course, as the yearning to find happiness and its causes, to be free of suffering and its causes. This yearning is for the sake of someone who does exist, yourself. And the yearning is naturally unbounded. No this side and that side, no friend and foe. So let that yearning take form, playfully, drawing on the creative potential of your own mind. Visualizing your own pristine awareness once again as an orb of light at your heart with every out-breath. Let this yearning take words, become articulate. May I be truly well and happy, hedonically well, eudaimonically happy. May I find the fulfillment that I seek. With every outbreath, imagine from this inexhaustible source at your heart rays of light, pure, primordially pure light of loving kindness, of joy, flowing out and permeating every cell of your body, every aspect of your mind, your entire being with every out-breath. Then once again simply rest your awareness in its own nature, its own place, and turn the light of your awareness to the space of the mind, and to whatever appearances arise within that domain or upon that stage. And observe the players who make their entrance and their exits, the players in the story of your life, As they come to mind, 
unlike the practice of simply settling the mind in its natural state by way of these appearances, attend to the sentient beings. Because they too have their perspective. They too are in the center of their mandala. They too have their own longings for happiness, wish to be free of suffering. Attend to them. Make them real. As real, at least, as yourself. You may invite into the space of your mind someone for whom this flow of caring, this flow of loving-kindness flows, flows effortlessly, spontaneously, the mere thought of the person. They open up the stream of loving-kindness. Attend to them. So similar to yourself, so equally worthy of love, And breathe out, breathe out to this individual or individuals, this light of loving-kindness as you have for yourself. Imagine this person finding the happiness and well-being that he or she seeks. Welcome into the space of your mind. The person whom you may know well, maybe not, but for whom there's no special attachment or aversion, quite neutral feeling, easy to ignore, to overlook. Attend closely to this person so much like your dearest friend, so much like yourself, attend closely.
breathe out the light of loving-kindness as before. And then allow into your mind a person with whom you've had conflict, discord. A person for whom, from your side, the flow of loving-kindness, of caring, is impeded. There's a barrier. Distinguishing clearly, decisively, between the person and the person's behavior, attitudes, appearance, and so on. Attend to the person whose mind in its natural state is brightly shining naturally pure. Of the nature of loving-kindness. <coughs> and moved by caring, just like your own. In the same way, just like your own. Attend deeply. With the eyes of wisdom. Until you see the utterly common ground, with no higher or lower, no better or worse. Without making up anything, without contriving or pretending. Attend closely until you see someone who in all most fundamental ways it's just like yourself. And when you can see that, when you can look into this person's eyes and say, I see you, then breathe out as you have done before. Breathe out the light and the life 
and the breath of loving-kindness. Imagine this person finding the fulfillment of his or her own innermost desire, stemming from this pure pool of light, this brightly shining mind. Once again, simply let rest your awareness in its own place. Utterly at ease with no object. Once again, let the light of your awareness be cast upon the space of the mind, but now without preference. Simply see who comes to mind spontaneously. Appearances of people are bound to arise. And as soon as they come knocking on your door, as soon as the appearance arises, attend to the person, or the people, or the sentient beings, whoever it may be, by way of those appearances, attend closely. Attend more closely. And breathe out the light of loving kindness as before. Let your awareness, like a bee visiting a garden, alighting on one flower after another. Let your awareness move freely from one person to the next, whoever comes to mind, evenly, without preference, for each one, 
breathe out the light of loving-kindness. Release all appearances and objects of mind, release all aspirations, and simply let your awareness rest in its own nature.
Ah, so nothing more. Enjoy your day. <laughs>